building, but on uh, Facebook Live who get to watch that from home. Some people who are unfortunately sick, maybe they're watching it at home, but I will say, as my brother Larry would say, thank you for staying home when you were sick. Isn't that right, Larry? I just call you out for that. That's right. I don't, uh, I don't like being sick. I don't like it when other people are sick, but I am thankful that when you are not feeling well, if you feel well enough to uh, be a part of this, to some degree you can uh, be a part of it um, on, on Facebook Live. Just a blessing to be together and um, to be able to worship our great God together. Appreciate you singing out so well and Jackson leading us in such great hymns and uh, praises to our awesome God. Appreciated the good news that Brent shared with us today. Uh, all the babies, all the newborns, of course, uh, in addition to the ones that were mentioned, we also have Emily, who is new to Wetumpka and new to the Bridges, and we're so thankful that she is here and uh, that uh, the three couples who were mentioned. You know, I noticed there was a lot of emphasis on Taylor Co Cochran, but I think David also played a part in that as well. So we have David and Taylor's baby as well as the Luckies and the Bears uh, please don't ever tell me uh, that you are having a baby and you haven't told other people yet. Have you, uh, you may have already heard that, um, you know, the, I was told about uh, someone expecting and I was like, but Eric, don't tell anybody yet because we haven't told some family members. In a week or I thought two had gone by and I thought, well, surely, I mean, everybody knows now. So I was talking about it and I found out, no, there were still some people who did not know about it. So let me just say in front of the whole church today, don't tell me secrets Especially if they're good secrets, because I tend to want to tell other people about that. So just, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, sorry if I just spill the beans on some things. So if you got secrets that are really good secrets, just don't tell me, because I tend to want to tell people. And I, I mean that, you know, in the best way possible. I don't, I don't like to do bad things, but, you know, sometimes you just, you just mess up. Really appreciated the ladies who were a part of the Ladies' Day yesterday, and those who... Uh, who organized it and took part in it. I heard that we had sisters in Christ here from, I think, 17 different congregations. Is that right? Is it, was it 17? And I know that our young ladies uh, enjoyed being a, a part of that as well. So thank you all very much for, for being a part of that. I want to continue. You know, there's so many people. So often we... Uh, we fail just to give thanks to different members for all the good that they do. You may tell you a couple who haven't been mentioned much lately in a while, and they would be embarrassed if I even mentioned them. But you know, Gary and Joyce Wade do so much for this congregation, and Gary has been serving not only as a deacon for many years, but as a treasurer here. And I know that Sister Joyce helps him out a lot with the technology side of things. Is that right, Gary? And we do appreciate those uh, who help with that. In fact, we have guys upstairs this morning who help us out with the technology every week. But I know Gary and Joyce put in just hundreds of hours and hundreds of hours, maybe more than a thousand hours a year with uh, keeping up with the book work and all of those kinds of things. So just appreciate them. Uh, and maybe that was just a random thought, you know, but I just realized so often there are so many of you who do so many good works uh, in the Lord uh, and for the Lord and His church, and just, uh, I suppose, we could spend a whole hour just thanking God for you guys. Um, you ever study the Bible and come across passages that almost uh, make your heart kind of jump up in your throat for a variety of reasons, or maybe make you worry? Have you ever studied a passage and it made you kind of concerned? Or maybe even the term worried might be used. 
And maybe it's for a variety of reasons. Let me tell you, when I was, and I'm almost 45, so I know as I get older, sometimes I have these memories and I'm not, you know, they're not as crisp and clear, like I'm not sure exactly the time, how old I was. And my wife is always there behind me making sure I get the story right, you know, at least the stories that she knows since she's known me. And, uh, but I have this recollection of being a teenager in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and, and coming out of the kitchen and walking down into our garage area. And just remember, for some reason, I must have just been studying it, maybe in a Bible class, but I had this uh, odd just concern that, um, that God's Word, that something must be wrong here. And this is kind of a, a random concern, you might say, and, and I don't remember the setting of it all. But I remember thinking, how can this be that when I read, for example, in Mark chapter 26, when I read about Peter's, uh, pre the prediction of Jesus, his prophecy that, that Peter was going to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows, and then wait a minute, how can it be that when I read in Mark's account that it is recorded that Jesus said, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And I just remember being a teenager and thinking, I'm a little concerned about this because how can both of these scriptures be correct? But apparently I wasn't too concerned because I remember there being years that went by before I ever really studied this and realize, wait a minute, here's an obvious answer to the question. Maybe you've studied the Bible for months or years, and there have been various passages that come to mind that kind of concern you. For a few minutes this morning, I'd like for us to look at, for lack of a better term, what I've called kind of stressful scriptures. And it, isn't it amazing how some scriptures will stress out some people more than others? I, I get a... a, a a lot of email we at Apologetics Press do, and, and it's amazing some of the randomness, and of course it, it's random to me, but I know it's not random to those individuals who are writing the emails, kind of the randomness of scriptures that, that bother people. Well, this was one that bothered me as a teenager, and I thought, wait a minute, how can Matthew say this? And then Matthew go on to say uh, that, that Peter, sure enough, denied Jesus once, and he denied him twice. And he denied him three times, and the rooster crowed. But when you read Mark's account, not only did Jesus predict and prophesy that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crows twice, but then Mark goes on to indicate that Jesus, that Peter denied Jesus one time, and the rooster crowed. And he denied him a second time. And he denied him a third time, and the rooster crowed again. And it could be that you're sitting there today like I was several years ago when I was a teenager thinking this is so frustrating to me. Something is not right about this. Was Jesus wrong? Was Matthew wrong? Was Mark wrong? What actually happened here? How can both of these scenarios be absolutely correct? And then, you know, we begin to think, well, you know, there are two different writers here. In fact, there's, there are four writers of the gospel, the one gospel, right? We call, some people call them the Gospels or the Gospel accounts, but there's one Gospel and there's, there's these different writers of the events that happened, some of the events that happened during the time of Christ. And you know, some writers can write about the same account in different ways, right? 
I mean, think about this example for just a moment. Let's say that you, uh, that you go to school. Let's say you go to a public school or a private school. I know we have a lot of different kids here who, who uh, are schooled in different ways. And um, I'm thankful to live in a country where we have the freedom to educate our children in different ways as the parents you know, choose to do so. And let's say that you have a son who's in the sixth grade and a daughter who's in kindergarten going to school for the first time. Now you may say, well, this sounds like a random illustration, but just hang with me here. Is it possible that the kindergartner who's never been to school a day in her life before is a little nervous about going to school? I mean, would you be? I'm pretty sure I, I probably was. Probably excited, but also kind of nervous. And, and um Let's say that the, the mom and dad are going to drop the two off for school and they tell the sixth grader, hey, after the bell rings, we're going to meet you right here on the side of the school at Grant Street and uh, we'll meet you right here where we're letting you off after the bell. You see anything wrong with that statement? And then the, the kindergartner, that, that your mom and dad, they're, they're already crying. You know how it is, parents. You know, your youngest heading off to school. Maybe your youngest is about to graduate school, whatever. The, the parents are just, they're emotional about it. And so they, they, they kind of are sniffling just a little bit. And the dad's certainly not, he's trying not to. And the mom's letting it go a little bit. And, and they say, now, now, Jennifer, we will meet you after the sixth bell rings right here on the side of the school on Grant Street. You know, the parents just gave the kids two totally different stories, if you will, right? At least it sounds kind of different, but are both of them accurate? They are both accurate. Why is it the case that they could both be accurate? Because they're putting emphasis on two different kinds of bells, if you will. You know, when the sixth grader hears the bell, what does he do? Well, it depends on what bell you're talking about. But what is the main bell of the day for any kid who goes to school? Is it the, the bell after the first class is over? Or the second class or the third class? Or if you were like me when I was in school, could you just not wait to get... It's kind of like when I'm ready to leave work. Now, I love my job, but when I'm ready to get out of there, I mean, Rob knows, listen, I'm gone. I'm ready to get, get to the house. I have family waiting on me. I have a little dog who's happy to see me more so than any of my family. I'm ready, I'm ready to get home to see that little dog, and, and so I'm ready to go. You know, kids are ready to go at the end of the day. And so to the sixth grader, the, the, end, uh, the, the bell is the final bell, the closing bell. It's kind of like, you know, when you would hear about sports and you, you read a story about a buzzer beater. A buzzer beater. What, what does everyone mean by a buzzer beater in, in a basketball game? What do they mean? Well, it's, the, it's the final buzzer. But do they say final buzzer? Do they say, now the final buzzer beater occurred and so-and-so won the game? No, they just say the buzzer beater. But is it the only buzzer that goes off during a game? No. So you could have a, a young child who is told, well, we'll meet you after the sixth bell. And sure enough, she's counting the bells. First bell, second bell, third bell, first day of school, I heard the sixth bell. I'm heading out to Grant Street on the side of the school right here to meet my�����������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������������
I mean, I was doing the same thing about every three seconds. And you do the same thing about every three seconds, and after about an hour and a half, you think, surely this day is about over. Well, I, I give you that scenario to think about this, to think through the rooster crowing and, and Peter's denials of Jesus. Let me ask you this. I don't own chicken. Some of you all do. I know the Tanners do because we eat some of their chicken eggs some, and, and I think the Edwards do, and I can't remember who all else here has, uh, has chickens. We're going to have to make sure the Edwards chickens don't have the coronavirus, right? <laughs> They're coming back. I guess I shouldn't be like joking about that, but I know that, uh, I know that they're in our prayers and uh, they don't have the coronavirus, okay? But they are traveling back from um, Greece and Italy here in a few days. And as we mentioned in our 830 period, they are, for safety precautions, I believe the government is going to make them be quarantined for two weeks. And maybe all of those who are coming back with the Faulkner group, I can't recall for sure, uh, but we do want to uh, continue to pray for them as they have that transition back home. But you know, uh, when Peter denied Jesus, there was a rooster that crowed after his first denial because that's what Mark tells us. Does Matthew, Luke, or John tells, uh, tell us that there was not a rooster crowing after the first denial? No, they don't say that. But you know what Matthew, Luke, and John focus on? They focus on the final crowing of the rooster. Now again, I'm no expert when it comes to uh, various kind of farm animals, but you know, in McClintock and Strong's um, encyclopedia, they mention talking about the roosters that were crowing in the first century and oftentimes in that area of the world, they said that the cock usually crows several times about midnight and again about break of day, the latter time because he then crows the loudest and his shrill clarion, as they put it, is most useful by summoning man to his labors, obtain the appellation of the cock crowing or the crowing of the rooster. So most anybody knows, well, a rooster is not oftentimes, you know, roosters don't just crow one time or they, they may not just crow one time in a 24-hour period. But you know what, what they had in the first century is an actual time of the night or early morning known as. It was just, it was like today we talk about noon and we talk about evening and we talk about morning we talk about lunchtime. We talk about getting off time to go, you know, go home from work. They had a time of the day, and it was just called the rooster crowing, the cock crowing. That was a, but now, was that the only time that the rooster crowed? No, but you know, in Mark's account, he records actually Jesus talking about watching therefore, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening at midnight at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning. So I know this may be somewhat of a long example or a long explanation to this stressful scripture, but I tell you, when I was a teenager, I remember this scripture just kind of stressing me out. But you know, it's not overly complicated. It's just oftentimes kind of new to us. We're not accustomed maybe to talking like this and understanding some of these differences. But Mark mentions that there was actually one period of night known as the rooster crowing, which incidentally and kind of interestingly, Matthew, Luke, and John are referring to that Peter would deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowing, before the crowing of the rooster, before that period of the night or early morning. And Mark, incidentally, who actually is the one who mentions this period of the night, is more specific. He mentions that there was a rooster that crowed after Peter denied Jesus the first time. And wouldn't you have kind of thought... And maybe we would have been as weak as Peter, I don't know, that maybe he would have come to his senses after the first denial because he heard a rooster crow. 
Maybe he didn't really hear it. Maybe it wasn't as loud as the one who would, that would come later. Or maybe he was just going through a hard time and he was scared to death. And he denied Jesus again and he denied him a third time. And then you have the crowing of the rooster. You know, a, a stressful scripture for some, and they hear critics of Christianity talk about this sometimes, are the ones, and the first time you look at this in these parallel passages, you think, wait a minute, I don't understand how and why Matthew could say that when Jesus rose from the dead and his tomb was empty, that those who came to the tomb were Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, according to Matthew. Or as Mark put it, it was Mary Magdalene married the mother of James and Salome. Or as John mentioned, it was Mary Magdalene. And so some may wonder, well, wait a minute, how can all of these be, how can all of these be correct? And it's a fair question to ask. Some people are stressed out by this in part because the enemies of Christianity, they will latch on to verses like this and say, wait a minute, you shouldn't believe the Bible is the Word of God because notice they couldn't even get right the most important day in the life of a Christian, the day that Jesus not only died, but the day that He rose from the dead, defeating death. The day This is the reason why we're here today on the first day of the week, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So who was at the tomb? Was Mary Magdalene there? Yes. Was there another Mary there? Yes. Was Salome there? Yes. Well, wait a minute. Why did they word it the ways that they did? Well, I don't know the answer to that other than that's how the Holy Spirit directed them. But I also know this. Don't we do the same things oftentimes in, in the way we talk about events today? You know, I can tell you that Friday night when I came home from work, my family wasn't there because Jana and Shelby had gone to a soccer game with Emma and Anna because they had a soccer game. And there would be nothing wrong with me telling you that. And it's a true statement. But I might be somewhere else where I mentioned, maybe I don't mention you know, Emma and Anna, maybe I mentioned that, that Jana and Shelby and three others went to a soccer game. And I, I mentioned three different names. Would that also be a true Yeah, there were seven people in that van Friday night. And Jana made it home safely about midnight. I was thankful for that. Well, you mean you can tell two different stories and mention different people and those stories be correct? That's exactly right. And that's, that's what we have here. We have... We have the, the Bible writers telling us, giving different perspectives, if you will, about the same event. And by the way, what if they had all given the exact same details down to the very minute details of it all? You know what the enemies of Christianity would say? They would say, Benjamin Wright, they copied each other. I remember years ago, and you've watched these kinds of shows, like a detective shows. Uh, I, believe, I believe it was Law and Order. I, I remember where they had a, a detective named Lenny, or Lanny, something like that. And um, he was interviewing suspects. In this particular episode, this suspect had the exact same story as this suspect, who had the exact same story as this suspect. And you know what Lenny quickly realized? Is they had gotten together, and they had colluded with one another to have the exact same story down to the most minute details. And so he said, I believe they've colluded together. You know, it's interesting that the Bible writers are similar enough in what they wrote. So as we can know, we can know they did not collude together, but they are similar enough so we can know that there are no proven contradictions. Let me give you, on a related note, kind of another 
stressful passage to some. Wait a minute, Eric. Okay, I can see where you talk about the women who were there at the tomb and maybe the different writers mention different ones, but, but how do we get them coming to the tomb and seeing an angel or a young man or two men or two angels? Who was at the tomb when the women got to the tomb on the resurrection morning, the day that Jesus rose from the dead? And the answer is, the answer is they were all correct. Well, how could they all be correct? Well, let me ask you this. If there were two men at the tomb, was there at least one man at the tomb? That's right. And is it also the case that we learn from the Old Testament especially that angels sometimes put on human flesh and would appear to people in the form of human beings? That's exactly right. Even God Himself came to earth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten, full of uh, grace and truth. So even God put on flesh and became a man. Is it possible that we have here men who were also angels, but they just came in the appearance of men? And is it possible that one writer focused on one of the men or angels while other writers focused on two of them being there? Sure enough, just as you could say that I went to a ball game with, with these individuals and not mention other individuals, not because you're trying to deceive someone, but you have your own reasons. Maybe because you don't, the people that you were talking to don't know all ten individuals that you went somewhere with, but they know a few of them, and so you mentioned a few. Again, we're not told why the Bible writers wrote it exactly the way they did, but the way they wrote it is, is not in any way problematic and should not stress us out. I mean, think about it. These little doodads right here, they're, we call them a phone, but, but are they really, is it really a phone? Well, no one's going to say to you if you say, well, this is my phone. They're not going to say, no, you're lying. That's not your phone. But if you say, hey, this is my computer, you know, some might say, well, that's kind of odd sounding, but is it also a computer? I'm telling you what, it costs a whole lot more than a phone. I know that. And some might say, well, this is my, my GPS, what you might call it, and it kind of helps me get from one place to another. It, does it also function as that? And all of those things are in one little whatever you want to call this, piece of metal or piece of whatever that costs way, well, I say too much. It is just amazing what all the thing does. But, you know, when, when the angels came to earth, they were angels. But what did they look like? They looked like human beings. So there's no problem here, no reason to be stressed out here. What about this particular idea of Jesus being God, but maybe not being God? And before we do that, let me just mention that, you know, the Bible is full of scriptures that when quoted without any consideration of the immediate or remote context, a person can, can misuse passages in all sorts of ways. I mean, think about John chapter 6 where Jesus said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. If we took this passage to mean we should not work for food, is that really what Jesus meant? Is that what he meant? Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Jesus is not, I mean, the Bible is clear that if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. The Bible is clear that, that God doesn't want us to be lazy. The Bible is clear, however, that spiritual things are what? 
they are much, much more important than physical things. I, I think somewhat of a parallel thought you can find where Peter is talking about how we are to clothe ourselves. And in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says this. He says, do not let your adornment be outward. Now, in my New King James, it, it, it puts in an extra word and it italicizes it because it's trying to help us better understand what Peter is saying. But that word is not actually in the original. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Do not let your adornment be outward. Does that mean we're not supposed to wear clothes? Absolutely not. Do not come here without clothes on, okay? Wear clothes and be chaste and modest, as he's talking about here in this passage in the very previous verse. But he says, do not let your adornment be outward. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. What's more important, the clothes you have on the outside or what you are clothed with inwardly and spiritually, who you are, who I am. You know, in our society, isn't, it, isn't there a whole lot of emphasis in our culture on, you know, just decorating, spending so much time decorating the out. Can't you tell I decorate the outside of myself a whole lot? I mean, come on. I'm just kidding about that, okay? But, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of emphasis put on. Y'all didn't laugh at that, by the way. And I, anyway, but Peter is saying, do not, do not what? Do not let your adornment be outward. He's, he's talking about an emphasis and he's not saying don't wear clothes. He's saying don't let it be merely outward. Don't spend so much unnecessary time. And so it's kind of a lesser to greater or greater to lesser type of argument. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And so we have to be careful when we're looking at the Bible that we look at the Bible as a, uh, as a whole here. There's a passage. I don't have it on there. Okay. I thought I had another passage on there where the Bible talks about you know, being, being diligent 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, to rightly divide the Scriptures in part because the sum of God's Word is truth. Psalm 119, 160. The entirety of His Word is truth. So it's not one Scripture to the exclusion of another. It's all of it together and they fit perfectly together. And so when the Bible tells us that, that, uh, that Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. And as some have indicated that this somehow proves that baptism is not essential or necessary for salvation to obey the gospel, to receive the gracious gift of eternal salvation. That's not what Paul is talking about at all. Beginning in verse 10, he's talking about the sad division that is there in the church in Corinth and among some of the members. The very next verse talks about basically the same things, these contentions that were going on. And some were saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Peter. And were you baptized in the name of Paul? And well, wait a minute. Paul says, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you. And then he names some that he baptized. His point there is not baptism is, is unessential. His his point was, don't be, don't be dividing yourselves over this kind of stuff. And he's saying, listen, I'm thankful. I didn't baptize any more of you than I did because there would be even more division than there already is based upon who's baptizing people. The emphasis is not on who baptizes you, but whom you are baptized into. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, into Jesus Christ, into His body, by His death, burial, 
and resurrection. And so, you know, we can sometimes be stressed out by various scriptures because we're, we're putting emphasis only on one or two passages to the neglect of the immediate context or to the remote context and to all the rest of the scriptures. And so maybe you've had someone knock on your door and they refer to themselves as Jehovah's Witnesses. They haven't actually witnessed literally Jehovah like the, the apostles were witnesses of Jesus Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection. But maybe they've knocked on your door and they're very nice and they talk about how you know Jesus is not God. Maybe they gave you some literature and said Jesus is not God because in John 17, 3, He prayed to the Father saying, You, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Allegedly by calling the Father the only true God, Jesus is said to have excluded Himself from the Godhead, from being deity, from being God. But such interpretation contradicts numerous other passages. Even in the Gospel of John itself, where you can read that Jesus was the Word, which is God, John 1, 1 through 5 and verse 14. You can read about how Jesus is the God for whom John the baptizer paved the way. And Isaiah said that John the baptizer, Isaiah said there would be one coming who would prepare the way for the Lord, thus the Lord must have been Jesus, must have been God. The Old Testament said that the Messiah, when He came, He would be mighty God. Unto us a son is born. The government will be upon His shoulders and we're going to call Him Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. Well, Jesus revealed Himself when He was in the flesh as the Messiah. He revealed Himself thus as Mighty God. Jesus said all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Can you imagine any mere man saying that? Mere men who are good men or women don't say, I've never heard a Christian say this in my life, have you? That you should honor me? I mean, that's blasphemous. But Jesus spoke the truth. And Jesus was not blaspheming because Jesus is, is deity. Jesus accepted worship from one whom He had just healed of blindness. He said in John 10, 30 and following, that I and my Father are one. And the Jews took up stones to stone him because he made himself God. And you can read in John 20 and verse 28 where Thomas confessed that he is my Lord and my God. Now, go back to John 17 for just a moment where Jesus is praying. And he's praying to the Father. And he says that we read that Jesus lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. Now, consider that on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, it was completely natural for Him to pray that all flesh or all people, depending on the translation you're reading from, many of whom were and still are pagans, pagan idolaters, it's perfectly natural that Jesus would pray that they would come to know the only true God and receive eternal life. Thus Jesus contrasted Himself not with the Father, but with all forms of pagan polytheism, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown mentioned in their commentary. With all forms of pagan polytheism, mystic pantheism, and philosophic naturalism, Jesus was not contrasting Himself with the Father, but contrasting the Father... God with all of the false uh, beliefs and belief systems and false gods of this world. You know, when a person understands that Jesus' statement was made in opposition to the world's false gods, 
and not to himself. The reference to the Father being the only true God harmonizes perfectly with the many scriptures that attest to the deity of Christ. Let me just continue on this thought, and then I'd like to get to one or two other examples for us this morning before we wrap up this lesson. If Jesus' reference to the Father in John 17, 3, and I've heard this passage used a number of times by those who want to contend that Jesus is not, was not, God. If Jesus' reference to the Father being the only true God somehow excludes Himself from being deity, then to be consistent, Jesus also must have disqualified, He must be disqualified from being man's Savior. I mean, think about it. We read in the Old Testament that God is the Lord. And besides me, he says, there is no Savior. In Hosea 13, 4, we read that I am the Lord your God, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. But wait a minute, the Bible calls Jesus in the New Testament our Savior many times. You know this. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, he's called the Savior of the body. One of the reasons, brothers and sisters and friends who may be here outside of the body of Christ, that you need to be, you must be a member of the body of Christ in order to be saved is because Jesus is the Savior of the body. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23. He's not a Savior of those outside of the body. He's willing to be. He's potentially the Savior to anyone and everyone. But they must choose to become a part of the elect, a part of the bride of Christ, a part of the body of Christ. So the Bible calls Jesus our Savior. It also calls God our Savior. Well, is God the Father our Savior? Yes. Is Jesus our Savior? Yes. If Jesus is excluded from the Godhead based on a misinterpretation of John 17, 3, then must God the Father be excluded from being man's Lord? I mean, you know Ephesians chapter 4. Paul wrote that there was one Lord. You have the other ones that are mentioned there. One of those is our God and Father, right? One of the ones mentioned is this, the Spirit. One of the reasons we can know that there is a triune God, a trinity, is because the Bible clearly says there's one Father, there's one Spirit, there's one Lord. They are the Godhead. As hard as that may be for us to wrap our minds around, God is three, and they are three in, in one. Well, who is this Lord? Well, is the Father Lord? Yes, is the Spirit Lord? Yes, we know that because the New Testament indicates that the Father is also Lord, that the Holy Spirit is Lord. Is Jesus Lord? Well, as you read through Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 3, again, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 11, it's Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, who is the one Lord in Ephesians chapter 4? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you read passages like this and others, it's not Jesus in contrast to the Father or Jesus in contrast to the Spirit. It's God in contrast. It may be the Father specifically or Jesus specifically or the Spirit specifically in contrast to all those who are not God. And so as former Jehovah's Witnesses explain, like David Reed, not our David Reed, but a David Reed who wrote a book on this subject, said, Jesus being called our only Lord does not rule out the Lordship of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Father's 
being called the only true God does not exclude the Son and the Holy Spirit from being deity. I know that may be somewhat of a drawn out explanation. Maybe, maybe it was somewhat quicker than it needs to be. But the fact is, it's not a problematic passage. That is John 17 and verse 3. Well, here's another one that has, has been a head-scratcher for some through the years. In fact, I just received an email uh, in the last few months saying, I, how could God actually harden someone's heart and then, after He hardens His heart, brings down all sorts of plagues upon Him and His country, His nation, like the Egyptians? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? What's the answer to that question? Well, the answer is... Yes, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. But here's another question. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, let me ask you this a different way. Did Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Did, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Well, you know, as you read through, uh, through Exodus, you read sure enough in, in chapter 7 and verse 4 as... Cody read for us a little bit ago, or verse 3, God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 7, verse 13, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Chapter 8 and verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so how, how is all of this to be explained? Is our God a loving God? Does He force people to, to disobey Him? No, He, he doesn't. But you know what God does do? Is He works in this world providentially and He also um, brings things about that you and I have a choice as to how we will respond to them. Right? Did, did God cause plagues to come upon Egypt? He most certainly did. And Pharaoh chose to harden his heart in response to the words of Moses, which were from God, the words of Moses and Aaron, and to the plagues that God brought upon him. You know, uh, we've talked here before about how the best way to interpret the Bible, as much as is humanly possible, is to allow the Bible to explain itself. So let's allow the Bible to explain itself for a minute and leave the context of, of Exodus chapters 7 and following and let's turn to the book of Job for a minute. And I invite you to turn to Job chapter 1. And I want you to see that you recall the story there of Job. And you remember how in Job chapters 1 and 2 we have the details leading up to the speeches of Job and his friends. Beginning in chapter 3 going all the way through uh, chapter 37. Well what were those details? Well you recall that Satan came before the Lord and he was... Um, he was critical, very critical of God in, in saying that God is not worthy of Job's, you know, just devotion, kind of inherent devotion to him, and that Job only served him because he put a hedge around Job and he basically gave Job all of this wealth. And, and it's kind of a backhanded way of saying, Lord, you're not worthy of just being praised because of who you are by your very nature. And you recall that God allowed Satan to go out and, and hurt Job. He allowed it to happen. And you recall that Satan used people and Satan used natural events uh, to not only destroy all of Job's property, so much of it, the donkeys, the, the oxen, the sheep, and also destroy his children 
But he said, don't touch the person, Job, his, his actual body. And so then after those events, Satan comes back to the Lord again. So I want you, I want you to pick up there in chapter 2 and notice chapter 2 and verse 3. The Lord said to Satan, verse 3, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the, in, on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. Was God the cause of Job's suffering? He was not the direct cause of it. The Bible reveals that this was Satan's doing. But could it be said in a sense, in fact, did God say that you incited me against him? Continue to read there. Look at verse 5. Well, verse 4, So Satan answered uh, the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. Again, Lord, you're not worthy to be worshipped and praised because of who you are. Just, just know that if you hurt him physically, he's going to curse you. And, and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job. Who did this? Was it God or was it Satan? Well, it was Satan, specifically. But the Bible writers oftentimes, and this is what we're trying to get to before we get to one last passage. Sorry, this lesson is going a little bit longer than, than my, I normally like to preach. But we'll, we'll hopefully not get out of here too late. I'll try not to go as long as my dad used to go when I was a kid, okay? My dad and I were just talking about this yesterday. So, so one of the things that the Bible writers do is, and it seems kind of foreign to us today, that they oftentimes talked about God as doing things when God merely permitted them to be done. In fact, when you get to the end of the book of Job, chapter 42 and, and verse 11, God reveals to us by His inspired writer these words. He says in verse 11, Then all his brothers, that is Job's brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before, came to him and ate food with him in the house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. The Lord didn't do it directly, but the Lord did allow it to be done. And so the Bible writers oftentimes talk about God's permittance, permission of something to be done as having actually done it. You know what God allows? God because He created the laws of nature, He allows a person who wants to walk off of a ten-story building to fall to his or her death. Did God cause that? Well, what do you mean? Did God create the very laws of nature that caused that to happen? Yes. In a sense, yes. Did God make that person fall to his death? Absolutely not. Any more than He made Pharaoh refuse to humble himself. In fact, Moses would later write in Exodus that Pharaoh refused to humble himself, that he hardened his heart, that he was stubborn, the Bible reveals. But you know what made him stubborn in these instances was that God was telling him through his prophets to let the Israelites go. 
So before we get to one last verse, let me just ask us this in a, as a point of application. What's going on in your life that could potentially harden your heart? What's going on in your life? What has been going on? What is going on? What might happen to us in the future that we're going to have to make real decisions and say, yeah, I'm going to harden my heart or I'm going to become stubborn. I'm going to not allow God's will to be my will. I'm going to refuse His will. You know, Pharaoh's hardened heart was not a one-time situation on this planet. People all the time decide for themselves how they're going to respond to God and what happens in this life. Just like those in Acts chapter 2 responded to the preaching of the gospel very differently than those to whom Stephen was preaching just a few years later. One last passage and before we offer the Lord's invitation, let me just ask us this. Have you ever been stressed out over what Jesus taught? Over what the Bible teaches about eternal punishment? I'm amazed we live in such politically correct times today that even in the Lord's house, Jesus' house, even in His church, that so many people who claim to be followers of Christ never talk about what Jesus said about eternal punishment. And the fact is, Jesus taught this. Jesus was very specific that those who choose not to follow Him, they are going to receive, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, everlasting punishment. You recall that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. And He's going to take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the very next verse says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. You know what the New Testament tells us very loud and clearly? And even what our Lord and our Savior tells us is there is such a thing as everlasting destruction punishment. And there are some who say, well, you know what? I, how can our God be just? How can He be loving if, if there is such a thing as eternal hell? And that's an that's a okay question to ask. There's nothing wrong if we're going to be respectful about it to ask the question, how is that, is that very possible? Is that, is that really possible that, that our God is loving and just and yet there be an eternal hell? Let me ask you this. What would you think about a, a local judge, or maybe it's a, a judge in a, in a higher court, who after hearing a case and after everyone on the planet has heard it, knows that there is a certain individual who murdered someone, not just someone, we'll say a hundred people in cold blood in two minutes. And the judge says, you know what, I'm a loving judge, I'm going to let you go free. And how would the world react to such a judgment? You know, they would react to this. We would react this way. And that is not a good judge. That's not a just judge. That's a ridiculous judge to allow such a heinous crime to go unpunished. And so punishment is not antithetical to a just person or a just God any more than a parent needs to correct and discipline his or her children. Any more than children in school need to be disciplined. And one of the reasons we have as many problems as we do in school systems around the country is because of a lot of unruly kids who are growing up in unruly homes 
who give a lot of school teachers a lot of problems. And we live in such politically correct times that it's like, well, wait a minute, can we punish any? Is it inappropriate to punish people who deserve to be punished? Not at all. Well, some people say, well, Eric, how can you have eternal punishment? How can that be just? And again, it's a fair question to ask. Nothing wrong with asking the question. And I'm not saying that I know all of the answers about this, but one thing I do know is almost all the time, punishment, I say almost all the time, much of the time, just punishment lasts much longer than the crime took. If a man can kill a hundred people in say two or three or four minutes, is it possible that that man will be sentenced to prison for the rest of his life? And is the rest of his life not millions of times longer than it took for him to commit the crime? Can our God be a just God and choose to sentence individuals who've committed the crime to eternal punishment. You know, only our omniscient God is in a position to determine how long sin should be punished. I mean, let me ask you this. Should sinners like us, should we get to decide what the punishment for sin is? You know, when I was a kid, my parents were disciplinarians. But you know what I would have loved as a kid when I did some really bad things? Can I decide how I get punished? Because if I got to decide how I got punished, I mean, that spanking wouldn't have hurt near as bad. That grounding would not have been near as long. But who knew better how long the punishment needed to be? My parents or me? Who's in a better situation to know what the punishment of sin should be. All-knowing, almighty, eternal God or little old Eric? God who knows not only the sin itself but all of the consequences of such sin. Am I in a position to be able to say, well, I know how you and I should be punished. I know how long that punishment should be. I don't. But I trust that my God does. You know, the criticism of the reality of eternal hell is in part the result of, one, not recognizing the heinousness of sin, and two, the prideful rejection of the Savior. Again, we live in a day and time, brothers and sisters, where if we are not careful, If you and I are not careful, if parents are not careful, if young people are not careful, we're going to become desensitized to sin. And it's going to cause us to think, thus, the ramifications of such, the consequences of such, are not that big of a deal. And our God is so awesome and He is so holy that the Bible tells us he cannot fellowship with sin. He is of purer eyes than to behold it, the prophet Habakkuk said. And so there are consequences for it. Consequences, which are death. Physical death, yes, but also spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. But as we close, here's the good news. Here's the good news. God said, 
my people whom I create in my image are going to choose sin. We rebelled against Him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so God says, I'm going to step out of heaven and I'm going to take the punishment for their sin so that they can come live with me in my presence and be holy and be justified just as if they'd never sinned. If they respond to my grace by faith. Initially, by faith is coming to know Jesus is the answer to the sin problem, repenting of sin, confessing faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins just as about 3,000 did on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And by faith, we continue to walk by faith and not by sight. We continue to walk in the light and not in darkness. We continue not as perfect people in the sense that we never fail again, but that we walk in the perfect light of the Savior, trusting in Him, habitually following Him, and not deciding to and habitually following Satan and walking in darkness. The fact of the matter is, as the Hebrews writer wrote in Hebrews chapter 10, those who go to eternal hell are those who trampled underfoot the Savior, the Son of God. Let's not leave here today in that situation. You don't have to. I don't have to. The good news is God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. But we do have to come to repentance. We have to say, you know what? I'm not going to hell. I'm going to go where my God wants me to go, where He's prepared for us to go, where He's given everything, His very life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. If you need to respond to God's invitation, won't you do so as we stand and as we sing?